you know, we're we're dealing with this these hard sayings of Jesus. What about what about the hard stuff of the church? Like this thing called grace and and faith and works. Oh, it's 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 an incredible controversy. You have entire denominations that have rose up and live out their day, making sure that they tell people that the only way to be saved, the only way that you can be assured of a place in heaven is via grace. That's it. Don't worry about anything else. Just it's it's grace. There is no n- nothing to understand beyond that. And of course, then, the church; those churches run into problems, as do other churches, when we start talking about James. Because James makes this statement, what? That faith without works is dead. So that's what we're going to concentrate on today, is that, that working part of it. And next week, Alice is going to uh, talk about the uh, grace. grace side of it. So the reading from which this comes today is the second chapter, yes, second chapter of James, beginning with the 14th verse. Dear friends, do you think you will get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And walk off without providing as much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good. You take care of the faith department. I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. No one can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, fit together, hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in one, the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that. But what good does it do then? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a moment, a minute, that if you cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hand, wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works, that works are works of faith. The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that God Abraham named God's friend. Is it not evident 
that a person is made right with God, not by barren faith, but by faith fruitful in works. Okay, so what we have to understand here is why is this controversial? The controversy for the evangelical Christian, those people who, by the way, don't like anybody. And, and they don't. I'm sorry, they don't. And that's why this becomes perfect, because their, their whole thing is that we are only saved by not anything that we have done. Okay? All right. So first of all, let's go back to the definition of saved. Does anybody remember what the definition of saved is? To be rescued from danger. Now, I gave you all the definition, oh, the Greek the definition, definition of the word saved. Salvation. Salvation. What is it? Well-being. Peaceful. Happy. Well-being. Peaceful. Happy. That is salvation. How do you become saved? By having a relationship with who? God. God. Because God is willing to do anything to be in relationship with you. That includes this whole Messiah thing where Jesus was so close to God that Jesus was willing to do whatever it took, including dying, to show people that the relationship with God was the most important thing. Folks, by definition, that is what? Salvation. Grace. Grace. Salvation. Grace. We are given that free. Now, here's something that we don't want to talk about in the church. Especially, and this is where I'm going to pick on the liberal churches, the progressive churches. Because liberal progressive churches sometimes get into this whole idea that, well, you know, the, the conservatives are always talking about us owing our lives. If you are loved unconditionally, if somebody saves your life, do you not have an obligation to respect that person at minimum to hold that person up at maximum? If they save your life, do you not have an obligation? Amen? So, somebody saves your life. I don't know how they do that. Maybe they jump out in front of you as a Marta bus was coming down the road, and they knock you out of the way. And in the process of knocking you out of the way, their ankle gets twisted horribly, and they have to go to the hospital, and it's multiple surgeries, and because of the time in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera, they lose their job. And the next thing you know, they're out on the street. They saved your life. Do you not have an obligation other than to sit there and say, I am praying for you to do something? I, you know, I could have gotten into so much trouble with Billy here about uh, two or three days ago because one of our family members uh, had gotten into it, uh, you know, with somebody else in the family, and all of a sudden they were looking for a place to live, and they were panicking. And without even thinking, you know, just did the chat. Well, come down here. You'll be fine. 
And then, of course, they sat there and went, well, gee, Uncle Paul, that's really nice of you. Thank you. I got to think about it. I'll let you know. All right, Billy's at work, right? I can't call him at work. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've just invited somebody into our house, and <laughs> it's like bringing a puppy home, folks. You know? But at the same time, what I've realized is that this is what we do. It's a reflex. If you have a relationship with God and you understand that God saved your life, then we have an obligation. And so all James is doing in this passage is really saying, and I like that word better, don't you? Obligation. James is basically saying, look, if you've got this faith and you understand what your relationship with God is, then you have an obligation. And he gives the perfect example, the dude that shows up to church or temple in this case, in rags, and he asks the hard question. You sit there and you go, hi, blessed in the name of Jesus. We're going to pray that you get some new clothes and you walk away. What have you done? Oh, I know. And this is the other thing that we don't want to talk about because it involves us looking in the mirror. We feel better. Because we are praying for somebody. I I took my faith as far as, you know. But do you all remember what I talked about a couple weeks ago? Remember the little old lady? The offering bucket? <laughs> oh, my. See, faith and grace and works are not in conflict. What, what's happening here is that you are getting a measuring stick from James. You got Paul and Jesus and everybody in there under the sun telling you that God loves you unconditionally. God will go to any length to have a relationship with you. And you know, there's lots of stories in the New Testament about that. Jesus tells the story of uh, the prodigal son, which is probably my favorite, because that dude goes off and, and blows all his money, gets into drugs and all that kind of crap, and when the whole world comes down around him, he decides to go back to God. We do that, do we not? We get away from God for a while, and then we make that decision to go back, and what's incredible about that story is the moment we make that decision, God comes and finds us. We don't have to get back to church. You don't even have to run. Well, that too. You know, did God ever leave? I don't know. That's that's open to debate. But at least as far as the story was, was that Jesus was saying, this kid had walked a long ways away. And we do that too. Amen? We walk a long ways away from God. And the point is, when you want that relationship, God, no matter how far away you are, no matter where you are, God will come find you, and there's a hug waiting for you. Now, James, then, takes the next step. We're not debating whether you're saved or not. We already know you are. But what James is saying is, by the way, if you have this relationship with God, would you please measure what you're doing? And you know what? 
going back to what Brandon said earlier, we don't want to do that because people, for the most part, are like lightning. We want to take the path of least resistance. Helping those people who have less than us is hard work. And you know what the hardest part of it is? We can't judge them for why they're in whatever pickle they're in. Amen? You know, I had somebody one time sit in my office and say that the toughest part for them ever in being able to show up for, to a worship service was the amount of shame that was built up. That means that they got to figure when they show up here that people are going to judge them for wherever they've been. And that is not the message of Christ. Remember the prodigal son? He'd done all kinds of crap. Oh, oh and by the way, wasn't the, uh, wasn't the, uh, the brother kind of pissed? <laughs> You're throwing a party. I've stayed right here. I've done everything that I, you've ever asked me to. I haven't stolen one thing from you. And then this one who goes out there and blows all your money, comes home sick, and with all these addictions and all these problems, you're throwing a party for him. And what does God say? Hear me now. You have always been with me. Everything I have is yours. But this one was dead. And now he's alive. What do you think, folks, after that party is over, the obligation of that one will be? You see, I said a couple of weeks ago, it is only in defeat that we can know victory. It is only in being rejected that we can know love. When we learn what love is, what is our obligation? Do we give out of what we can afford? Or do we give what we can't? See, it all ties together. This has never, ever been a question about salvation. Although I am sure that the vicar next week is going to talk about that grace in an expanded way. I'm going to leave you with this. If you have a relationship with God, I want you to look in the mirror and ask yourself one question. One question. What am I doing today to help God's people? What am I doing today? By the way, you can procrastinate. You all know who uh, Graham, Alexander Graham Bell is? Yes. You know, he was uh, actually, according to this thing that I dug up, he was a, he was a pretty, pretty smart guy. Do you know that he... He's the guy who developed the tricycle landing gear that we see on airplanes today and jets. I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he invented that. Um, he made a bunch of other machines. He made the audio meter so that it's possible to measure how your hearing is. Right. All of his inventions and his smarts made the family incredibly wealthy. <clears throat> but did you also know that Bell never found time to submit the patent application to the government for the telephone. Really? It was his father-in-law 
who had financed much of his research, became so impatient with Bell that on February 14th in 1876, Bell's 29th birthday, he filed for a patent. It was just a few hours after that patent application was filed, a fellow by the name of Alicia Gray went to the patent office and filed on a machine he had also been working on for many years, which was the telephone. I want you to look in the mirror today. Know that God has saved your life. God has saved your life. What are you going to do for God today because of that one act?